Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given up his office for the sake of the cause. Today we'll share a classic interview with Gary Thomas, his latest book, When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People. The book is published by Zondervan. We'll also talk with Tom Jipping. He's a deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, and he's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about why the uh, U.S. uh, Senate should confirm the president's Supreme Court nominee, which we now understand will be named on Saturday, uh, rather than giving in to threats from senators who have threatened all kinds of responses to either try to prevent it from happening or to um, exact a, uh, a toll if, in fact, the Senate does confirm a Supreme Court justice to uh, replace uh, the now deceased member. Well, taking a look at some of the headlines, Governor Kate Brown today issued vetoes of several line item appropriations in order to preserve funding for the state's ongoing emergency wildfire response efforts and maintain a balanced budget. Combined, the vetoes will preserve about $65 million, improving the state's ending balance to total $164.3 million in general funds and $16.7 million in lottery funds. In order to expedite an immediate relief package by the legislature's emergency board, the governor has also requested that legislators reserve at least $150 million in the state's emergency fund for upcoming requests relating to those fires. When it became apparent, the governor said, that COVID-19 disproportionately affected black, indigenous people of color, and tribal communities in Oregon, the legislature and I worked together to steer coronavirus relief fund dollars to those communities. The governor said, now we must work together to help Oregonians who have lost everything from these fires. Until we understand the total impact and cost, we must help Oregonians while being judicious with our funds. She added, in light of the current wildfire state of emergency, which occurred after the adjournment of the second special session, I am exercising my veto authority to ensure that state agencies fighting these wildfires have necessary resources for responding to this emergency. Meanwhile, the Oregon legislature is going to be holding legislative uh, days uh, next week as the Capitol itself continues to be closed because of the pandemic. Lawmakers have been meeting in special sessions virtually and with social distancing, depending on the situation. State Senator Lynn Findley, a Republican out of Vail, who's a member of the Joint Ways and Means Committee, said Thursday that an all-important revenue forecast will be issued, which will give a picture of where the state is financially. That committee will uh, meet the 25th. And while there are rumors of having another special session, he and Representative Mark Owen, a Republican from Crane, and Daniel Bonham, a Republican from the Dalles, expressed opposition to a special session, especially if it would occur after the election. The three spoke during Thursday's virtual town hall session, part of the series of town halls the trio have been holding online. Well, this town hall was delayed a week because of the fires, referring to the closed Capitol building. Bonham, who represents House District 59, expressed concern about the public uh, not being able to be part of the process in order to make good public policy. Public involvement is needed. So for his part, Owen said that there are just 14 days left to take part in the consensus 
uh, rather the census and expressed concern that Eastern Oregon is behind in participation, noting that the census is used to formulate in the distribution of federal funds and in redrawing of congressional and legislative districts. He said for those schools which are able to have in-person classes, they're working very well and that there um, have been no outbreaks of COVID-19. People need to learn how to live with COVID and not let COVID run our lives. Again, the legislature meeting in some form next week. Well, the school board of the tiny Adrian School District near the Idaho border has filed a lawsuit against some Oregon leaders demanding it be permitted to educate students in person during the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, the board filed the complaint Thursday against Colt Gill, who's the director of the Oregon Department of Education, and Patrick Allen, director of the Oregon Health Authority. Adrian is located in Malheur County, which uh, has uh, by far the highest rate of COVID-19 infections in the state. It shares a border with Idaho, which has higher case rates and fewer coronavirus restrictions than Oregon. The state has told the schools that they can't operate in person, with some exceptions, unless the county's positive test rate stays at 5% or lower for three weeks in a row. In that county, the positive test rate has ranged from 36 to 41% in the three most recent weeks. The school board's complaint claims if the children are not immediately returned to in-person instruction, immediate and irreparable harm will be caused to the school district's resources and immediate irreparable harm will be incurred by the students in the form of reduced quality of instruction. Well, in the suit, the board says it, not the state, should be have control rather of the district. Board members are all elected volunteer members who have been imbued with the responsibility of ensuring that the students of the Adrian School District receive a good and proper education. Well, Adrian School District educates just under 300 students with a total of 17 to 30 students in each grade. The farming community of Adrian has fewer than 1,000 residents. Well, the state does not release case counts for communities with such small populations. The Adrian School Board is concerned about the lack of ability to use limited in-person instruction to meet the requirements of comprehensive distance learning. We'll continue to follow that story as it develops in the state of Oregon. Well, the deadly pandemic, the worst in a century, an economic downturn, the most disastrous in decades, and often violent summer of nationwide protests over racial inequality and other matters, and now the most bitterly partisan of all political battles, a Supreme Court nomination fight that's been added to the toxic mix with uh, just a month and a half until Election Day and with the first presidential debate between Democratic nominee Joe Biden and President Trump hosted by Fox News' Chris Wallace just one week away. Well, the Supreme Court vacancy will undoubtedly be a key topic of the debate next week. Uh, Trump re-election campaign communications director Tim Martaw says uh, there's no argument uh, that uh, they're from seasoned political strategists from both sides of the aisle. They both agree that that will be one of the major issues. Longtime Republican strategist uh, Colin Reid agreed, emphasizing there are 90 minutes to debate and they have a whole host of issues to cover. But all of a sudden, the Supreme Court fight is going to be front and center. In fact, Chris Wallace, who's conducting that debate, has uh, released what the topics will be. We'll get into that later in the program. Meanwhile, Senator Lindsey Graham says Trump will have the votes to get the Supreme Court pick confirmed. Well, the Justice Department on Monday refused to uh, request, rather, from Representative Gerald Nadler, the House Judiciary Committee chairman, for top officials to testify on several issues, citing a recent appearance by Attorney General William Barr that the letter called an attempt by the committee members to air grievances. The letter, which was signed by Assistant Attorney General Stephen Boyd, said that committee members spent most of their time 
uh, at Barr's July 28th appearance at an oversight hearing to scold and insult the country's top prosecutor. Well, a woman who was one of uh, two Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies wounded in an ambush attack that shocked the law enforcement community was released from the hospital on Monday. Her partner, a 24-year-old man, was released on the 16th. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department tweeted both have a long road to recovery. Great news. Both of our deputies from the hashtag Compton Ambush have been discharged from the hospital and are resting, the department wrote. They both have a long road to recovery and hashtag LASD appreciates your continued prayers and all the support. Hashtag LASD strong. That's, of course, uh, represents the police department. On Friday, Sheriff um, Alex Villanova said that the investigators were following up leads and were looking for a witness captured on video near where the shooting took place. In other news, CNN's Don Lemon has suggested that uh, the whole system be blown up. And Derek Carr has thrown three touchdown passes as the uh, Raiders open the Allegiant Stadium with a win over the Saints. Yes, football is back. FedEx was ripped over a Washington football team name change during a shareholder meeting. And Boeing is gearing up for a 787 move to South Carolina. The coronavirus is being blamed for historic housing supply shortages, and the news goes on. Well, the president met with uh, Amy Coney Barrett at the White House, the first confirmed meeting with one of the five people believed to be on that short list of Supreme Court potential nominees. Also from the story, the president has also said he may meet with uh, Lagoa while in Miami later this week, another of the um, women on that list. Trump said five women are being vetted. Uh, for the seat. He said Monday he probably would not interview all of the candidates personally. A look at the five uh, uh, that Trump is considering is a worthy enterprise. Allison Rushing, the lone evangelical, also happens to be the youngest at 38. Most agree she's too young. And several reasons why Trump uh, hasn't announced the candidate yet. Well, one is out of respect for uh, the burial of um, uh, justice whose vacancy is about to be filled. RPG, if you will. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the news headlines for the day. We're also going to hear a classic uh, interview with Gary Thomas, author of When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People. In the second hour of today's program, we'll talk with Tom Jipping. He's the deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He's also a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about why he and others believe that the president should in fact, confirm a Supreme Court nominee uh, and not give in to threats being uh, leveled by senators who oppose the notion. We'll also see, is this another example of political hypocrisy? All of that coming up at five o'clock. Well, Guy Benson looked at past history on election year vacancies and why this is no different, uh, suggesting as he examined how it was the Democrats uh, who soiled the process uh, of uh, Kavanaugh have held their position, which was the opposite last time around, and the Republicans have held theirs, which was the opposite last time around as well. Mitch McConnell provided historical context to the decision to put forth the nominee in statements made earlier today. And from the Wall Street Journal editorial board, they write that as for the argument that this is all moving too fast, there are uh, 43 days until the 3rd of November election day. John Paul Stevens was confirmed in 19 days. Sandra Day O'Connor in 33 and Justice Ginsburg in 42. The Senate 
can do the job in a month if it focuses on the task. Dr. Albert Moeller said that right now, if President Donald Trump, a Republican president, nominates a conservative justice to the Supreme Court, who is confirmed by the president uh, Republican majority in the uh, United States Senate, that will mean a conservative justice sitting where a liberal justice had sat for three decades almost. And so you're looking at a fundamental change in the court, and both sides understand that. That's really the heart of the controversy. That's why Democrats, he goes on to say, and liberals are so upset. And that's why conservatives and Republicans see an opportunity they cannot, in the face of history and in the face of Republican voters, fail to fulfill. Joe Biden is flip-flopped on the election year vacancy, depending on the party in power, uh, this time around. But, of course, he would not be alone in that. Well, all potential nominees, many Catholic, appear to take their faith seriously. Democrats are expected to launch full religious assaults on the president's uh, nominees. Democrats, many of whom claim to be Catholic, have already targeted those who actually live out their faith. In 2017, C.C. Pecknold wrote of the religious test they tried to tried on the confirmation of Barrett. He now says the religious test that they applied did not work then, and it won't work this time either. It's interesting to see Catholics favor Biden 53% to Trump 41%, but will they still, after watching Democrats ridicule what they believe? Meanwhile, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said on Sunday, faith in the public square is not only lawful, but righteous. This faith is not only powerful, but required by the American tradition. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion, and morality, rather, are indispensable supports. Well, Lonnie Chen makes the point that uh, Mr. Biden is not a moderate. Chen looks at Biden's aggressive plans, which include remaking the U.S. health care system, expanding housing subsidies, and making public colleges and universities tuition-free for families making less than $125,000 a year. In fact, one economist concluded that Biden's policy platform added to the largest proposed spending increase by a presidential nominee since George McGovern, the Democrat who, in 1972, proposed a universal basic income for all Americans. Meanwhile, Joe Biden refused to answer whether he'd work to pack the courts. It appears Biden botched the Pledge of Allegiance and another appearance. When armed motorists has shot two carjackers, the uh, carjackers were armed but likely didn't expect the Second Amendment to come into play. They'll be reluctant to do it again, and I suppose others looking on might as well. NFL players wore the name of one of the killed officers, police officers, on the back of his helmet. This was Pittsburgh Steeler uh, Marcus Pouncey, who explains why he feels it was a mistake to wear the name of Antoine Rose the week before. And six accused of arson in Oregon fires are making headlines. According to the story, none are thought to be politically motivated, although that doesn't matter if your house was burned down. And Louisville has declared a state of emergency prior to the Breonna Taylor announcement. The grand jury is expected to make a decision on the case at any time. But when asked about the radical idea of packing the Supreme Court, Biden said, I'm not going to answer that question. He would anger one or the other side of his party by doing so under this current circumstance. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg is lying in state in the U.S. Capitol on Friday, the first woman to hold that honor. Well, the second wounded Los Angeles deputy has been released from the hospital after the ambush attack brought her and her partner down. And a state of emergency has been declared by Louisville police ahead of the uh, decision expected at some uh, point 
in the very near future by the grand jury there. Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis has proposed new felony charges for violent protesters and harsh penalties for cities that defund police. A federal judge has ordered Wisconsin absentee ballots postmarked by the 3rd of November to be counted in the 2020 election. So they can arrive after November 3rd. They just have to be postmarked by November 3rd. And while a Pennsylvania mail-in ballot ruling could cause $100,000 uh, 100,000 ballots, rather, to be rejected. So lots of different rules across the nation. The Congressional Budget Office says the federal debt is nearing unsustainable levels. Maybe I should repeat that. Unsustainable levels. The Congressional Budget Office saying the federal debt has reached it or nearly reached that uh, level. And U.S. household net worth spiked, surpassing the pre-pandemic peak. In other words, the Trump recovery is doing much better than expected. Well, CIA whistleblower Edward Snowden has agreed to forfeit more than $5 million from book proceeds to the U.S. government. And New York City, Portland, and Seattle have all been deemed by the Department of Justice as anarchist jurisdictions. Sweeping new sanctions hit Iran's nuclear and ballistic missile programs. And Mike Pompeo is threatening China with sanctions over Iran's arms deal. A House Foreign Affairs Committee uh, report says China tried to cover up the scope of COVID-19, which could have prevented the pandemic altogether. And the Trump administration has invested more than $100 million to fight human trafficking. Beta becomes the ninth landfall storm of 2020 in a record-shattering season in so many ways. And even with lockdowns, the woke Emmys posted the lowest ratings ever in uh, uh, a not- uh, in a note of context, more than half of all Supreme Court justices were re- confirmed in 45 days or less. Well, this day in history, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln issued the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, declaring all slaves in rebel states should be free as of the 1st of January, 1863. 1949, the Soviet Union explodes its first atomic bomb. On this day in history, 1961, the Interstate Commerce Commission issues rules prohibiting racial discrimination on interstate buses. And 1975, Sarah Jane Moore attempts to shoot President Gerald R. Ford outside a San Francisco hotel, but misses. And finally, on this day in history, 1980, the Persian Gulf conflict between Iran and Iraq erupts into full-scale war. Well, moderator Chris Wallace is selecting topics for the first Trump-Biden presidential debate quite late in the game. The Supreme Court battle, coronavirus pandemic, economy, unrest in cities are among the topics to be covered. Well, the brutal Supreme Court nomination battle, the worst pandemic to strike the globe in a century, a national economy flattened by the virus, and the protests and violence that have flared in cities across the nation this summer will be some of the major topics. Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden and President Trump will debate next week as they face off for the first time in the 2020 general election. The nonpartisan commission on presidential debates on Tuesday announced the issues that the moderator in the first debate, uh, Fox News Sunday's uh, anchor Chris Wallace, has selected as topics for the showdown. Wallace also included the Biden and Trump records and the integrity of the election. Another crucial issue, considering the president for months has uh, railed against expanding voting by mail amid the pandemic, repeatedly charging that it would lead to a rigged election. The nonpartisan commission, which has organized and conducted the president's and vice presidential general election debates for more than 
uh, three decades, cautioned that the topics listed are subject to possible changes because of news developments. Among those um, topics, the Trump and Biden records, the Supreme Court, COVID-19, the economy, race and violence in our cities, the integrity of the election. The first debate between the former vice president and the GOP incumbent in the White House will take place on Tuesday, that's the 29th, in Case Western University and the Cleveland Clinic in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. The format for the first showdown calls for six 15-minute long segments with each segment dedicated to a particular topic. The commission explained that topics were announced in advance in order to encourage deep discussion of the leading issues facing the country. Biden and Trump will debate twice more on the 15th of October in Nashville, Tennessee, and on the 22nd of October in Miami, Florida. Democratic vice presidential nominee Senator Kamala Harris of California and Vice President Mike Pence will debate once in Salt Lake City, Utah on October 7th. All four showdowns will start at 9 p.m. Eastern time, 6 p.m. Pacific time, and will run 90 minutes without any commercial interruption. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with uh, Gary Thomas, author of When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, best-selling author Gary Thomas is helping readers find freedom from toxic people in his latest book. When to Walk Away takes beloved relationship author Gary Thomas in a new direction as he helps readers understand that relationships with toxic people may not be worth the time and effort they take away from an individual's calling. Learning how to deal with toxic people isn't first and foremost about protecting our joy, our peace, our reputation, or even our sanity, though these things are good aims. He says it's primarily about protecting our mission. Instead, he explains we need to focus on time and energy on people he calls reliable. Drawing from years serving as a pastor, he shares both biblical and modern examples to equip readers with practical insights to deal with difficult people in life and how to live true to one's God-given purpose. Christians especially often feel the guilt and responsibility of meeting the needs of unhealthy people in their lives, even more so if that person is a sibling, a parent, a spouse, a child. We're going to talk about that. Well, my guest, Gary Thomas, is a writer in residence at Second Baptist Church in Houston, Texas, and an adjunct professor, uh, faculty member, I should say, teaching on spiritual formation at Western Seminary here in Portland and Houston Theological Seminary in Houston, Texas. He is the author of 19 books, including Sacred Marriage, Sacred Pathways, Cherish, Sacred Parenting, and the gold medallion award-winning Authentic Faith. He has a master's degree from Regents uh, College, where he studied under Dr. J.I. Packer and was awarded an Honorary Doctorate in Divinity from Western Seminary. He's spoken in 49 states and 10 different countries, has appeared on numerous um, times on variety of uh, national television and radio programs, and we're just delighted to have him with us today to talk about how to handle people who are, well, toxic, when to walk away, finding freedom from toxic people. Gary Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be back on with you, Georgine. Thank you. Well, this is um, something of a departure from what we're used to hearing from you, but it really isn't because you're still writing about relationships, but just how to handle those that are unhealthy. Well, it is, and it's about healthy relationships and investing in those relationships that really give the most benefit for the sake of God's kingdom and even our overall um, joy. So, it, it's focusing on why we need to walk away from toxic relationships that tend to make us sick and sabotage the healthy relationships. Well, let's begin by defining what a toxic relationship is and how that differs from just being annoyed, for example. Yeah, that's such a key question. 
every toxic person is difficult, but not every difficult person is toxic. A difficult person might just be annoying. A difficult person might be troublesome. But a toxic person has an agenda. They want to hurt you. They want to control you. They're determined to get you to do what they want you to do, or they just basically want to take pieces out of you. And so if you're around people that are doing that, where they're undercutting your self-confidence or you think you have nothing to give to anyone else, they show your peace and joy so you don't have the energy or zest left over to be a light to other people. Basically, they're not only just keeping you from helping them because toxic people don't want to be helped, but they're keeping you from the productive relationships that God calls us to be a part of. And so when they're taking pieces out of you, an analogy might be when you go through lifeguard training, one of the first things they teach you is self-defense. Because if you're going out to try to help somebody who's drowning and they're panicking, they may Mm -hmm. unintentionally drown you. And so you've got to learn how to protect yourself so that you're not brought down or, or nobody wins. I think we need to do the same thing for spiritual ministry, that we don't let ourselves be drowned, not from a selfish perspective, not because we don't want to be bothered. As Christians, we live to be bothered but so that we can be strategic as Jesus was in making the most of every opportunity. One of the points that you make, and I think this is so important and you write about it, is the relationships that may be toxic that are most difficult for us are those familial relationships of siblings, parents, uh, close family relations, maybe even a spouse. Can a toxic relationship or person be redeemed or restored? Uh, Because we always want to be hopeful, but is that realistic to imagine that it's possible? And if so, what would it take for that to happen? Yeah. Well, walking away isn't always writing off, but it means at this given moment, it's just not productive for us to be there. Uh, And the title, When to Walk Away, really comes from the example of Jesus where I was shocked to discover 41 citations in the Bible, and they're all in the appendix, where Jesus chose to walk away from someone or let someone walk away from him without giving chase. And we see how he even, with his family members at times, would seem to let them walk away. One time they came and they said, here's your mother and brothers. This is who are my mother and brothers. It's he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus was so focused on the ministry that God gave him, And in many of his passages, he makes clear that loyalty to his blood supersedes loyalty over every other blood, including familial blood. So it's a whole new way of life that we're about the mission. And when to walk away is just about being focused on that mission and not letting toxic people sabotage it, regardless of whether it's a family member, a boss, a coworker, a sibling, or an adult child. Now, and you you do this very well in the book, but our time, of course, is very short. And I want to make sure that we address this notion of uh, just simply walking away because we are annoyed or frustrated and severing ties um, for that purpose, putting ministry ahead of the relationships that we ought to nurture. So can you just spend a moment to kind of clarify so that we understand we're talking about a certain kind of toxic person and not just simply, for example, someone for the sake of ministry neglects their family? Oh, absolutely. The, the whole point of when to walk away from uh, toxic relations is to walk toward the reliable people. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 2, whatever you've heard me say in the presence of many others, and trust to reliable people who are qualified to teach others. And Jesus set up the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19. 
as making disciples of all nations. Every Christian is called to be involved in healthy relationships, and I do believe that we need to put our spouses and our family first. Look, I've spent my whole life writing about that. Uh, But we can get to a point, um, you're talking to adult children or other times, where we allow those toxic people to keep us from the productive relationships. Jesus was so free in sharing his truth then when somebody wouldn't receive it, he was just as free to walk away. And that's what we're saying we need to do. Well, you made reference to this a few moments ago, that Jesus walked away from toxic people in relationships. You mentioned um, him uh, focusing on his mission, even when his mother and siblings uh, appeared to to see him. Can you give us a few compelling examples of this um, that influenced you the most in recognizing Jesus' wisdom in making sure he was focused on his mission and yeah. was not distracted by toxic people? Yeah, let me give you two. The first one is in a toxic situation, but it's illustrative of what we're talking about. It was a rich young ruler. And the reason I choose that is one of the Gospels mentions Jesus loved him. The rich young ruler came to Jesus. He had been a, lived a largely obedient life, but there was something about him that drew Jesus to him. It says very clearly, Jesus loved him. And then Jesus makes an incredible invitation. He says to him, look, you want to be perfect, sell all that you have, and then come follow me. And we think of that as a common phrase, but it wasn't. Apart from the disciples who did respond, the rich young ruler is the only person I could find that Jesus said that to as an individual. The rich young ruler, however, chose to go away. The Bible says he went away very sad because he was very wealthy. Now, we know that Jesus loved him, but the next verse says Jesus turned to his disciples and said, let me explain to you why it's so difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He didn't say, look, let me have another chance or whatnot, even though his heart was toward that man. And what that tells me is that we can't even let personal affinity affect our strategy. Jesus said, okay, if you're not ready to hear the truth, if you're not ready to become an obedient disciple, we spend my time with those who are. In a toxic situation, there's a famous case in Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus heals a couple men possessed by demons. The demons asked to go into a herd of pigs, and Jesus said, sure, they go into the pigs. Pigs run over the cliff, and the townspeople are appalled. Their livelihood has just gone over the cliff. And then this is what's so sad to me in Matthew eight thirty four. They have Jesus in the flesh. They, they get to see what we would. I can't even imagine what mm. we pay for a ticket to see Jesus over a weekend. But they said they pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. They said, just go, because they were more concerned about what had happened to their livestock. And Matthew 9, 1 is the very next verse where it says, Jesus got into a boat, sailed away, and went to his own town. He didn't walk away. He sailed away. The principle is the same, that when Jesus, he, he wouldn't apologize. He'd say, I'm giving you an opportunity to respond. But if you don't, I'm going to go to the reliable people. I'm going to go to those who are willing to walk in obedience and spend my time there. Hmm. How can you tell who the reliable people are? Well, Paul says qualified to teach others, and that doesn't mean they have the gift of teaching. But I think it's people who have an open heart. For me, Georgine, what I look for is humility. Um, it's, it's something I have to aspire to. It's something every healthy Christian should aspire to, because without humility, we don't think we need to grow. And I think that's one of the things with toxic people, why interactions are so ineffective with them. Uh, some months ago, I had to have an adult tooth taken out. There was an infection that kept coming behind it. I I don't know if you've ever been through that as an adult, but it is not a fun procedure. Mm. 
It's like you pulled me job. And if if I had woken up and somebody had strapped me to a chair and did that to me, I would be screaming bloody murder. I'd want the person to go to jail. <laughs> I paid that man a thousand dollars to do that to me. And the reason why is I saw the infection on the x-ray. So mm. you know what? I've got to get the infection out. And so when we share even the best truth, the, 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 the grace-filled truth, but somebody doesn't think they have an infection, not only will they not appreciate it, they'll turn on us. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6, don't give what is holy to dogs or throw your pearls before swine, or else they'll turn and tear you to pieces. And that's a picture of somebody without humility who's getting the pearl of great price. They're getting the truth of God's reconciling love. But it doesn't break their heart. It doesn't convict their heart. It makes them angry and spiteful. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be torn up as you go into ministry. Yeah, yeah. Georgie, that, that was the amazing insight for me is that just after Jesus said, Matthew six thirty three, seek first the kingdom of God. In other words, church, go on the offense. Seven verses later, Matthew 7, 6, he says, but don't give what is holy to dogs or throw your pearls before swine. We're talking with Gary Thomas, author of When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. I'm continuing my conversation with author Gary Thomas, his latest book, When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People. Now, in each chapter of When to Walk Away, you include insightful takeaways that can be applied right away uh, to the readers. Talk a little bit about um, the structure of the book and how you intend for your readers to get the most out of uh, learning these principles of walking away from toxic people. The first part of the book just gives the example of Jesus. That's really what is the heart of the book, following the example of Jesus, who was strategically focused on making the most of the life that um, he had on this planet and walking away from the toxic people. Then we go into describing what is a toxic person. It takes three chapters, but there are certain things that we look out for. Again, we're not talking about difficult people. Mm -hmm. I'm not mentioning them as as, uh, unchristians, but really talk to people, and then the need to go on the offense. Why do we walk away? Because the time is short and the mission is so urgent. And so finding those reliable people, and then we take all of those principles and basically apply it to relationships. What does it mean toxic people at work? What does it mean even in a marriage situation? What does it mean with parents? What does it mean with adult children? And then also an honest look about how not to be toxic to ourselves. Georgine, some of the people listening, the most toxic person in their life is the one who brushes their teeth mm. every morning. If we want to rid the world of toxicity, we don't want to be toxic to ourselves. And then also, a, I think, an inspiring chapter of a guy who recognizes he was a toxic person and his path out of it, what he learned, how the presence of Jesus Christ in his life helped him to go from being a toxic person to one who encourages and loves. How do you set healthy boundaries to protect your purpose and mission if you find yourself in an environment where uh, you are in the uh, orbit of a toxic person? One, I found the easiest way for me without guilt to walk away from a toxic person is to be involved in healthy relationships. Uh, If a toxic relationship is taking me away from being present with my wife and kids when I get home, the kind of relationship that's haunting you, you're trying to figure it out, uh, they keep you awake at night, 
what happens is that relationship is chipping away from the healthy God-ordained relationships, and that's a good sign that you need to walk away. Um, if I'm in a work environment and I find myself spending more time trying to avoid someone or interacting with someone and not getting the work done that, frankly, I've been hired to do, that's a good sign. It's a toxic relationship and I need to walk away. So really the best key is to have that positive sense. What's the mission God has given you for this day? What are the healthy relationships you're called to invest in? Family relationships, but also productive relationships of discipling and, and giving what God has given you and, and, and making a priority of those. It's the priority that Jesus gives us in the Great Commission. It's the priority that Paul gave to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, and it's just organizing our life on that level. When we are in the midst of the kind of attack that a toxic person uh, levies toward us, how do we find refuge in God when those uh, and when we're in the process of trying to extricate ourselves from the situation? But how do we find refuge during uh, those attacks? If we don't want to be vulnerable to toxic people, we have to learn to not care what they think about us. For me, one of the most liberating chapters was the one about Nehemiah, who wanted to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, who was attacked with threats from religious authorities, from, with threats that were going to bring in political authorities. They questioned his motives. They were lying about him. And the end of the book of Nehemiah is, ends with this, remember me with favor, my God. And the reason Nehemiah was able to overcome the lies, the threats, um, just all of the, the challenges and the slander is that he was more concerned about being remembered with favor by God and not by the toxic people. When we care what toxic people say about us, even though knowing others might believe them, we give them a particular power. We're going to spend too much time trying to placate them, even though they can't be placated. So we need that freedom that Jesus had, the freedom that Nehemiah had, to just say what matters first and foremost is that I'm remembered with favor by God and not worrying what others think. How do we keep a tender heart um, even when we are confronted by or influenced by an unhealthy relationship? The most dangerous thing about not walking away from toxic people is the tendency for us to become toxic ourselves. I, I don't know if you've experienced this, Georgine, but I'm never more tempted to respond in a toxic way than when I'm dealing with a toxic person. If they're trying to control me, I want to control them back. If they're trying to murder my reputation, I want to slam theirs. And so when I go and live by Colossians 3, where Paul says we take off anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language and line, that's all the arsenal of a toxic person. Instead, we're to be people who are compassionate, kind, gentle, patient and loving that's the model that i want to give regardless of how this person is responding i'm called because of the love of christ to respond with compassion mm -hmm. kindness gentleness patience and love and not to use the toxic tools of anger rage malice slander filthy language in mind now one of the things that we mentioned earlier is that you encourage your readers uh, to invest in people um, who are, are healthy, um, engage in relationships with what you refer to as reliable people. How do we grow the inner strength to invest in the kind of people who, have, or who are like-minded and are not determined to undermine uh, God's call? It's one of the things I hope this book does, Georgine, is just fire up God's people with a sense of mission. 
not because we're important, we're not, but God's kingdom is important. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and you cannot be a Christian without being called. And you can't be a Christian without being equipped. It's not that we're gifted, it's that the Holy Spirit within us can be so powerful. So when we honor our time, and we honor the God who is within us, and we honor the message of reconciliation, God reconciling the world to himself, we honor that message as well. We realize every day matters, and every relationship is important. And why waste our time with what Jesus would say, giving what is holy to dogs or pearls before swine, when we know they just won't appreciate it, they're just going to attack us for it. Instead, we can find the willing. We can find the understanding. It's the method that Jesus used. It's the method that Paul urged to Timothy. It's the method we need to live today. It's God's method to see his kingdom glorified in this world. I think for many of us, um, toxic people and relationships are people that we care about, we're concerned about, and even though that's not reciprocated in a healthy way, we want to have hope that there's transformation in the future. How should we relate to the, to people, even though we've we've um, we're not relating in the same way, we're not allowing them to influence and undermine uh, God's call in our life. What hope do we have for, for toxic people, and what should our approach be, not in terms of our personal contact, contact um, but our hope in their future? One of the most difficult and convicting portions for me in researching and writing this book and going through the scriptures is to see how evil controlling is. Um, as powerful as God is, as right as God is, if he compelled all of us and made us follow him, we think in one sense, we would be better off. But God was a God who offers choice. Choose you this day whom you will serve. He demonstrates choice by Jesus walking away from people and letting them walk away from him. It's Satan who is controlling. Um, You don't hear the Bible ever talk about God possession. It does talk about demonic possession. Even though we're filled with the Spirit, Paul says the Spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of prophets. So what that means, Georgine, to answer the question I can speak the truth, I should lay out the truth, but I can't control, I can't compel their response. I have to leave that with them. If I try to become controlling, even if I'm in the right, I'm not using the methods reflected in the image of God. I'm actually using the strategy of Satan. That's a difficult lesson to learn. And and so we can act in a toxic way without being toxic. A, A mom who knows a son, for instance, is getting into drugs, can be very difficult for her not to be controlling. But we have to be strong enough to realize that God calls us through persuasion. He, he doesn't force us, and he calls us to treat others as he treats us. Once again, the book is titled, When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People. Gary Thomas, thank you so much for talking with us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having Appreciate me. Appreciate it. By the way, the book is published by Zondervan. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you probably know by now, Supreme Court Justice vacancy that was left by Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to be filled by the Senate predominantly GOP and nominated by the president. Well, that has certainly poured gasoline on an already 
out-of-control fire. Well, here to talk about why the Supreme Court justice should, in fact, be nominated and placed before the election is Tom Jipping. He's deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He's also a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, The director of Heritage, K. Cole James, wrote that nominating justices to the U.S. Supreme Court is one of a president's most important constitutional responsibilities. It's spelled out clearly in Article 2 of our founding documents, the Constitution, and it happens over 100 times in our country's history. But like so many things, she goes on to write in America today, a Supreme Court nomination is a highly politicized affair. Well, it certainly is that. It began uh, many years ago with Robert Bork in the uh, Clinton administration, and it's only intensified since then. Now, when uh, President Obama had the opportunity to nominate Merrick Garland to be his Supreme Court pick when there was a vacancy, Republicans said, no, this is not a, a good time. We need to wait till after the election. The tables have now turned. The Democrats who said, no, you need to move forward with this are now saying, no, you shouldn't move forward with this. And the Republicans are saying we should. Your thoughts on why the Supreme Court nominee should be named, a vote should be taken, and that uh, individual should be seated. Well, a, a couple of things to keep in mind. One is um, that is the sort of default position. I mean, presidents do have the authority to make nominations. It's the Senate's job to evaluate them. Uh, that is the normal course of, of business when it comes to making appointments. So that's, that's kind of the default position. Mm-hmm. Uh, once, in a, once in a while, there are circumstances where it's done differently. There is no mandatory process for handling nominations or including Supreme Court nominations. The Constitution doesn't require a particular process. Senate rules don't. And in the past, while it's been done before, every vacancy, every nomination is different. There's, there's never been uh, any Supreme Court vacancy or nomination under these exact circumstances. So I think common sense would say to to say that different situations have to be handled the same uh, just doesn't make sense. Um, There's enough time to make a nomination and for the Senate to evaluate and decide whether to confirm someone to the Ginsburg vacancy, and that's what ought to happen unless there's a compelling reason not to. And no one has suggested a compelling reason to depart from what the normal course of the appointment process would be. My understanding is President Trump, uh, in nominating a candidate for the court, will join 22 former presidents in making an election year nomination. For many of the uh, Senate Republicans, they're suggesting that the confirmation process of Kavanaugh is what, for them, was really a turning point in terms of moving forward this time around. Your thoughts on what happened under the um, Obama administration in which he was deprived of the opportunity to seat a member to the court when there was a vacancy uh, in the last, what, nine or ten months of his presidency and this time around? Well, of course, in, in 2016, in February, Justice Antonin Scalia passed away. Um, within just a few days, the majority of the Senate Judiciary Committee sent a letter to Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. They said, we, sh- we are not going to hold a hearing on a nomination until the, n- the next president is sworn in. Um, remember that in 2016, different parties controlled the White House and the Senate. Those are the two parts of the appointment process. And when the letter that the, that the re- uh, Republicans sent referred to our next president, they meant exactly that. Remember that that was the last year 
of President Obama's presidency, we would absolutely have a new president after that election. We didn't know who it would be, but we knew that we would have a new president. Neither one of those situations exists today. The same party controls the White House and the Senate. And for all we know, the incumbent president, this is President uh, Trump's first term, uh, will continue in office after this election. So the, the, the two reasons that the, that the Republicans said in 2016 to, we would depart from that sort of standard uh, process, neither one of those uh, circumstances exists today. So, you know, I'd say again, for people to say that different situations have to be handled the same doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's really been remarkable following the announcement by the president that he will name a nominee and the Senate, uh, McConnell and others saying we will take up a vote uh, for that nominee, is the uh, the Democrats threatening revenge if a replacement is confirmed by anyone but them uh, in this uh, in this election year, uh, promising to pack the court should they win the White House, the House and the Senate in the upcoming election, uh, going so far as impeaching the president to stall uh, progress moving forward. Now, is that unprecedented? And what are your thoughts about some of the threats that we're hearing from the uh, House in particular, but Democrats in general? Well, that we we have been around this block once in 1937. Uh, President Franklin Roosevelt, he'd just been reelected in a landslide in 1936, and he had huge majorities in both the Senate and the House. He didn't like the way the Supreme Court was ruling on his New Deal legislation, and so he proposed exactly what some Democrats have proposed today. He said, let's expand the size of the Supreme Court. Let's pack those new vacancies with the kind of justices we want, and that way we'll get the kinds of decisions that are favorable to our political agenda. And it was his own party, it was Democrats in Congress, especially in the Senate, that said no. They rejected court packing for a very important reason. They said when you manipulate, especially this way, I mean, this is an explicit direct manipulation of the Supreme Court in order to get favorable decisions, that would completely destroy the independence of the judicial branch. And Democrats in 1937 said that no political objective is worth destroying the judicial or the independence of our judiciary. Uh, I think it was William Rehnquist who said that 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 kind of independence was the crown jewel of our judicial system. And once you destroy it, you can never get it back. So in that sense, yes, it is uh, this, this is a repeat. We have been around this block. Democrats got it right in 1937, uh, but they're turning their back on that now. It's like saying, if you don't give me the keys to your house, I'll burn it down. I mean, we, we, we ought to, no matter what your party or your ideology, we ought to reject that kind of trashing of our system just because you don't get your way um, and, and ought to reject this kind of thing out of hand. One of the complaints I'm hearing is that this is very likely going to be a contested election. Uh, In one state, for example, you can uh, turn your ballot in without it being postmarked three days after Election Day and it will still be counted. So the anticipation is that this will be contested and the Supreme Court will ultimately weigh in on uh, who the actual winner is. And the complaint is if President uh, Trump has the opportunity to seat a justice to fill this vacancy, then essentially he's guaranteeing, assuming there is a contest and it's close enough, uh, that he will uh, get a favorable vote. Your thoughts on the role the Supreme Court is likely to play if, in fact, there is a contested uh, outcome? 
I, I think that kind of speculation is really irresponsible. Nobody knows uh, what, what the outcome of the election is going to be. We can call it a, quote, contested election, but uh, the, the result of an election can be challenged or contested for dozens of different reasons. We have no idea whether or how that would happen or how a case would go through the courts, what courts it might go through. Uh, and it also assumes that simply because President Trump appoints a judge, that that judge somehow, what, will feel obligated to return the favor or something? I think, I think that's really insulting and demeaning to all federal judges because it casts aspersions and partisan assumptions on every federal judge in the country. And I don't think there's any basis for that whatsoever. So um, I, I, I think that kind of speculation is kind of reckless uh, and is unnecessary. I don't think we should be talking, you know, assuming before an mm -hmm. election even happens that it's just going to be chaos. It may be. But here we are creating expectations that it's going to be, and I don't think that's good for our yeah. uh, election system. Not, not responsible. Well, we certainly will watch with uh, great interest. The president, I understand, is going to name his nominee on Saturday, and the process will begin. Tom Jipping, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Again, Tom Jipping is a deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He's also senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. I wanted to point out that almost 200 years ago, de Tocqueville observed the unique role of the Supreme Court. He said, I am unaware that any nation of the globe has hitherto organized to judicial power in the same manner as the Americans. A more imposing judicial power was never constituted by any people. End quote. Well, the role of the Supreme Court is just as vital today as it was then and what uh, plays out in the weeks. And uh, I guess now it's just weeks ahead, uh, I suppose, will determine whether or not we will continue to embrace what the framers had intended for this independent body. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to mention that we are hosting a virtual pastor's appreciation event. And I have to tell you, nobody's no more disappointed than I am that we're not going to have an in-person, singular location event where we have the opportunity to express our gratitude to pastors and those who serve in ministry among us. But we are going to hold a virtual pastor's appreciation event. For many years, 93.9 KPDQ has hosted an annual event for ministry leaders to come together for a few hours, share a meal, hear a message of encouragement from one of the luminaries in the Christian world. Well, as I mentioned, this year we're showing our appreciation the entire month of October, and we're going to bring pastors and ministry leaders a free virtual program. Now, starting on the 1st of October, which is next Tuesday, I think, um, we're going to release a new program every Thursday featuring national speakers, Chuck Swindoll, Tony Evans, John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, and many others. Now, these are messages specifically for you in ministry for pastors. We'll also have musicians like Stephen Curtis Chapman for King and Country, Michael W. Smith, Natalie Grant, and more. So there are some advantages to being uh, part of a virtual event. While our virtual pastors appreciation event is free, we want to encourage and minister to you. To register, go to kpdq.com. The event is sponsored this year by Cascade Furniture. Now, registration is free for all pastors and ministry leaders. 
But wait, there's more. We also have an opportunity for you to win a $2,000 technology upgrade. You tell us what you need, hardware, software, up to $2,000 in value, and we'll ship it your way if you're our winner. Plus, we have a $500 shopping spree from our friends at Cascade Furniture. We want you to know that we appreciate you and your ministry to your local church. Sign up for free and find out more at kpdq.com, our virtual pastor's appreciation event beginning October 1st. Well, the United States hit another grim milestone in the coronavirus epidemic on Tuesday when the death toll surpassed 200,000. That's according to data compiled by Johns Hopkins University. The country leads the world by far in both the number of deaths and the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases, which has climbed to over 6.5 million as officials in several parts of the U.S. begin to loosen restrictions on social distancing rules. Brazil has the second highest death toll and trails the United States by more than 40,000 fatalities, with India marking the third highest. According to recent data, the case numbers in the United States have fallen from a peak average of 67,000 new infections per day in late July to about 3,600 now. Deaths linked to the virus are averaging about 750 per day, and that's down from 2,200 in late April, according to the Associated Press. Well, experts have warned against abandoning the practices that have helped flatten the so-called curve, particularly before a vaccine is made widely available out of fear that the country may see another spike. But exactly when a vaccine may be available has become another point of contention because health officials and uh, uh, political parties are making hay of um, those outcomes. On Wednesday, President Trump announced a vaccine distribution plan and predicted that a possible candidate would be available to the public as early as October. But Dr. Robert Redfield, director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, told a Senate panel not to expect one to be widely available until the summer of 2021. The president suggested that Redfield was confused by the question he was being asked, which led to a discrepancy in their timeline. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's leading infectious disease expert and face of the coronavirus task force, said that he would bet on a vaccine to be proven safe and effective before the end of 2020. While Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden has voiced skepticism over Trump's timeline and has urged the public to trust the scientists, of which Anthony Fauci, of course, is one. All of that to say a vaccine will come when and in what form we don't really know. Then we heard this from the CDC. Thousands of people may have been exposed to COVID-19 on airplanes. Uh, Again, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, agency officials believe nearly 11,000 people may have been exposed to one of the 1,600 known cases of people flying while contagious with the virus, despite being able to confirm, uh, unable rather, to confirm a single case of viral transmission on a U.S. plane. What they're saying is the potential is there, the capacity is there, but the numbers don't um, necessarily prove that that's what's happened. An absence of cases identified or reported is not evidence that there were no cases, says the CDC spokesperson. CDC is not able to definitively determine that potential cases were associated or not with exposure in the air cabin or through air travel, given the numerous opportunities for potential exposure associated with the entire travel travel journey, and uh, widespread global distribution of the virus. Well, studies published by the CDC's journal, they've also found evidence that COVID-19 may have spread on airlines in other countries. The most recent report published on Friday detailed a Vietnam airline passenger who likely spread the virus to 14 fellow travelers uh, on a March 1st flight from London to Hanoi. 
The flight had 217 people aboard, according to researchers. Now, I traveled to and from uh, L.A. just recently. We were socially distanced. The, the middle seat was always left vacant. We were require, required, rather, to wear our masks at all times. Uh, things were wiped down. And, of course, you have the option of doing that for yourself throughout. There was no food service. We did get a cup of water and a pack of, um, I'm not even sure what it was, nuts and some other sundry things in a bag. Uh, but I was quite impressed. This was a southwest uh, west flight. Um, it wasn't overcrowded. So I felt quite safe and wearing the mask the entire time. What the CDC is suggesting is that the potential for transmission is great on an airline, which I suppose isn't really news to anyone, uh, but they aren't able to confirm whether or not that actually has produced significant increase in the number of COVID-19 cases. Tony Perkins, in a recent column, made the point that the Supreme Court vacancy has poured rocket fuel on the 2020 election. And he writes that just when many thought the stakes of the 2020 election couldn't get any higher, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away after a long battle with cancer, leading to an immediate opening on the nation's highest court. The political implications of this are as impossible uh, to calculate as they are important in the near term as the judicial philosophy of whoever fills it will be in the long term. It's not lost on many that President Trump was propelled to victory in 2016 by conservatives and evangelicals who seized on the importance his publicly uh, released list of potential Supreme Court nominees to fill Justice Scalia's vacancy uh, had on the election. Now two Supreme Court justices, many lower federal court confirmations, and a number of key rulings later, Trump's legacy in the court is almost already confirmed. On top of all this, the seat occupied by the court's arch-liberal just opened up, paving the way for the president to make a judicial nomination a bigger issue in the 2020 uh, than in 2016. Well, the constitutional and legal implications and the stakes for the court's judicial philosophy, the impact on the many landmark cases it will decide in the coming years have only increased. Roe versus Wade is obviously on the minds of many, and a pro-life movement committed to its abolition is as close now as it's ever been. Add to this the impending religious liberty threats by those who want to use the levers of government power to punish Americans holding beliefs about marriage and sexuality out of date with elite opinion and the attacks on a host of other constitutional rights like gun rights and free speech. It's no wonder that the court is so important to conservatives. Uh, and then you add to that the religious war that's likely to uh, uh, take place uh, depending on who the, uh, the president nominates. Among the five women, we know that at least two or three are Catholic or and one evangelical who are, of course, religious. And already we're starting to hear criticism about their religious um, uh, point of view in the run-up to the nominating process. So this is a consequential decision at a strategic and very challenging season. We need to be praying. Um, maybe we don't know what the outcome should be, but we can certainly be praying that God would have his hand on the process and his will ultimately be done. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Senate Republicans have enough votes to confirm a replacement for late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg before the November 3rd election. That's according to Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham. Uh, it's pretty obvious that if they, referring to the Democrats, want an outcome, they'll just destroy anybody's life to keep the seats open, Graham told 
Sean Hannity while being interviewed uh, a day or so ago. They said they tried to destroy Bet- Brett Kavanaugh so they could fill the seat. They were dumb enough to say that, Graham added, and I'm quoting, I've seen this movie before. It's not going to work. It didn't work with Kavanaugh. We've got the votes to confirm Justice Ginsburg's replacements before the election. We're going to move forward in the committee. We're going to report the nomination out of committee to the floor of the United States Senate so we can vote before the election. Now that's the constitutional process. Well, protesters gathered outside Graham's Washington, D.C. home on Monday morning after he pledged to move the nomination process along in the Senate. His critics appointed to his statements after Senate Republicans refused to move forward uh, Barack Obama's nomination of Judge Merrick Garland in 2016. So recently, or as recently as October of 2018, the South Carolina Republican stated, if an opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term and the primary process is started, we'll wait till the next election, end quote. After Kavanaugh, he now says, everything changed with me. They're not going to intimidate me, referring to Senate Majority Leader uh, uh, Mitch McConnell or anybody else. Well, the Judiciary Committee chair added that Trump's nominee expected to be announced uh, on Saturday will be supported by every Republican in the Judiciary Committee. Well, some Democrats have renewed calls for packing the court after Ginsburg's uh, uh, death. Now, we talked with Tom Jipping about that, but what does uh, packing the court, how does that work? Well, the fight over the seat um, of the late uh, justice has thrown the Supreme Court and its current conservative majority into focus once again. And the question is, what is court packing? Uh, such a move uh, known as court packing, it would be aimed at tipping the balance of the Supreme Court back in favor of liberals if Democrats manage to take the Senate and the presidency. It hasn't been tried since President Franklin Delano Roosevelt threatened to expand the bench in, to 15 due to his frustration with the Supreme Court regularly thwarting his New Deal programs on constitutional grounds. Well, after the court stopped nearly uniformly ruling against Roosevelt's programs in the late 1930s, the president eased up on his uh, threats, leaving the nine justices uh, and the bench intact. Well, the change in the Supreme Court approach to Roosevelt's New Deal program has been called the switch in time that saved nine. Well, how would it work? The Supreme Court, the federal judiciary are written into the Constitution, but the legislative branch through laws it passes that are signed by the president is given broad authority on how to set up the judicial branch, including the number of seats on the Supreme Court. And the threat is we would just simply increase the number to a favorable uh, number to whichever political ideology one embraces. The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. That's Article 3, Section 1 of the Constitution. The Judiciary Act of 1789 established the first Supreme Court with six total justices. The number of justices changed several times in the early years of the Republic, including 1801 as the Federalist majority in Congress and the Federalist President John Adams removed a seat on the Supreme Court. So incoming Democratic-Republican President Thomas Jefferson couldn't fill a vacancy. Adams also rushed to fill a federal court with Federalist judges in his last days in office, appointing what were termed midnight judges. One such appointment of a Washington, D.C. justice of the peace eventually led to the landmark Supreme Court case Marbury versus Madison, which is known for establishing federal judicial review, but fundamentally ruled that new Secretary of State James Adams, James Madison, rather, was required to deliver the Adams-appointed justice 
of his commission. This is Justice of the Peace, his commission. Well, the number of Supreme Court justices has remained constant at nine since the Judiciary Act of 1869. If congressional Democrats wanted to change that, all they would have to do is pass another Judiciary Act. What's the chance of that? Well, despite the outrage felt by uh, Markey, Senate Majority Leader, rather Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and others, Uh, about the uh, Senate Republicans' plan to plow ahead with confirming a Trump Supreme Court nominee, have said a Democratic majority would likely have trouble getting all of its members to go along with court packing the scheme. Joe Biden was asked the question just uh, a day or so ago, if not earlier today, about that. He refused to answer, knowing that he would anger one end or the other of the continuum in his uh, party, saying that, yes, he would support it or not, because even the Democrat Party at this point is divided on the issue. Well, in closer-to-home news, protesters once again returned to the uh, Penumbra Kelly Building in southeast Portland Monday night, blocking traffic on East Burnside in both directions. No arrests were made, and the gathering dispersed around 12.30 a.m. The Kelly Building, which houses offices for both the Portland Police Bureau and the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office, has been the frequent site of demonstrations in the past. Well, via Twitter, police warned people not to go onto the property or they could face arrest citation or the use of crowd control agents. By 12.38 a.m., the Portland Police Bureau tweeted, the gathering has left and East Burnside Street is reopened again in the interest of de-escalation and because there was no immediate life safety threat, officers remained back, no arrests were made. So the uh, protests have resumed. Well, the Louisville Metro Police Department announced today that it's going to begin setting up barricades in the downtown area and restricting some vehicle traffic in anticipation of an announcement from Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron regarding the investigation into Breonna Taylor's death. This comes after the department declared a state of emergency on Monday and a federal courthouse and adjacent offices in Louisville were boarded up Sunday ahead of the decision. Cameron has repeatedly refused to give a timeline for his investigation, but he will eventually present his findings before a grand jury who will decide whether to criminally indict the three officers involved in her death. Due to increased attention and activity in anticipation of an announcement from Attorney General Daniel Cameron regarding the Breonna Taylor case, a decision was made to accelerate plans to physically restrict access to the downtown area. That's a statement uh, tweeted earlier in the day today. While we do not know when the Attorney General will make his announcement, LMPD is taking the following actions now to ensure the area is as safe as possible for those coming downtown to express their First Amendment rights, as well as those who live and work in the area. So it's not based on the decision that's going to be announced. It's based on the fact that a decision will be announced and most likely Someone in the crowd will not be happy about it. If criminal charges, for example, are not levied against those officers who were involved in her death, um, then they anticipate uh, that there will be a violent response uh, to that decision. So they are preparing ahead of time for what they will do. The Justice Department officials on Tuesday announced the largest international opioid takedown targeting drug traffickers through the dark net, as it's called, which resulted in about 179 arrests and the seizure of more than $6.5 million in cash and currency. Deputy Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, flanked by FBI Director Christopher Wray and other law enforcement partners, announced the seizure of approximately 500 kilograms of drugs worldwide. 274 kilograms of which were recovered in the United States, including fentanyl, oxycodone, methamphetamine, and hydrocodone. 
Agents also seized 63 illegal guns. Criminals selling fentanyl on the dark net should pay attention to Operation Disruptor. That's what they called it, Rosen said in a prepared statement. The arrest of 179 of them in seven countries with the seizure of their drug supplies and their money as well shows that there will be no safe haven for drug dealing in cyberspace. Well, Operation uh, Disruptor was begun nine months ago and spanned the United States and Europe. It comes more than a year after officials took down the Wall Street market, which was believed to be one of the largest illegal online marketplaces on the dark net. So kudos to those who were um, a part of that effort. The U.S. Army is sending Bradley fighting vehicles to Syria to bolster force protection in the region as ISIS still poses a threat, according to a coalition spokesman. The coalition continues to support our, support rather our partners bringing the fight to Daesh. Operation Inherent Resolve spokesperson Colonel Wayne Moroto wrote on Twitter, Bradley's were... Um, last deployed to Syria in October of 2019 to partner with Syrian Democratic Forces to defeat ISIS remnants. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. You know, it might be tempting to think, given all of the uh, news that we've covered today, that uh, the gospel is at a standstill that God is unable to move among people around the uh, around this community and around the country. But the truth is, God always has a backstory that really is the story that most of us are unaware of. One example of that is in the country of Iran. A recent report is suggesting that Iran has over a million new converts to Christianity. There was a survey that was uh, taken recently of about 50,000 Iranians over the age of 20, Uh, It was a Netherlands-based secular research group, and they found that 1.5% of respondents identify as Christian. Now, to identify as Christian in Iran is a big deal. Well, applied across Iran's population of more than 80 million, the number of Christians there is without doubt in the order of magnitude of several hundreds of thousands and growing beyond a million. And again, this is a secular research group. It's called GAMAN um, in their study. Well, Open Doors USA, which is a global persecution watchdog organization, and that's uh, uh, one of the territories they work in. They say that until now, there was no in-depth research to substantiate the claims about the number of Christians in Iran, those who work in and around the country uh, who have the ability to communicate, um, have known this for some time, but this is the first time there's been a a survey research to substantiate what they have already known and have been saying. Uh, Open Doors goes on to say, given the high stakes consequences of leaving Islam in Iran, estimates uh, by Christian organizations in the past decade have been based only on extrapolations of small known number of conversions, largely based on contact with Christian satellite television channels. Uh, The nonprofit watchdog group Article 18 noted that if this figure is extrapolated across Iran's 80 million people, then even taking into account the approximate 300,000 recognized Christians of Armenian and Assyrian descent, this would suggest an additional 1 million converts to Christianity. Mike Ansari of Moabat TV, a ministry that broadcasts the gospel into Iran, was quoted as saying, Iranians are turning their back on their faith, on their institutional faith, and receiving Christianity, a better way of putting that, receiving Christ as their new faith. 
1.5% becoming Christian may not seem a big number, but for a country that is closed and persecutes Christianity, that number is a huge indication of the gospel growth. Ansari told the Christian Post in 2018 that Iran had one of the fastest growing underground church movements in the world and that hundreds were asking about Jesus on a daily basis. But the growth has also led to ongoing persecution. Iran is an Islamic republic and Shia Islam is the official religion of the country. It's illegal for Muslim citizens to convert or renounce their religious, uh, their cultural religious beliefs. Conversion from Islam is considered a crime punishable by death. And it's also illegal for Christians to share the gospel with Muslims. Proselytizing is punishable by death as well. And yet the number of Christian converts in Iran continues to climb. Those who convert to Christianity usually practice their faith in secret. House churches are often monitored and raided, and dozens of Christians are imprisoned. Open Door noted that in its annual World Watch uh, that ranked Iran as the ninth worst country when it comes to um, Christian persecution, that the church continues to grow. Now, that ranking comes as several house churches were raided during the World Watch List reporting period. That was uh, November 1st to October 31st, straddling 2018-2019. During that period, Open Doors reported that at least 169 Christians were arrested in Iran. In June, Article 18, which promotes religious freedom and tolerance for Christians in Iran, released a report in collaboration with its partner organization, Open Doors, Christian Solidarity Worldwide, Middle East Concern, and the World Evangelical Alliance listed five ways Iran violates Christians' rights to religious freedom. They prohibit uh, Persian-language church services and religious materials, force closure of those that fail to comply. The report, point, uh, report rather pointed out, adding that the country's penal code is used to prosecute Christians for their peaceful religious activities. Iranian authorities prosecute and, in one case, executed Iranians who leave Islam on charges of apostasy and justifies it through the use of Article 220 of the Iranian Penal Code and Article 167 of their constitution, which allows judges to rely on non-codified Islamic law. Uh, the report uh, pointed out, this month, three Iranian Christian converts who were facing a combined 35 years in prison because of their faith fled the country after a court rejected their appeal. The three converts identified, uh, whose names I won't mention, were charged due to their connection to a December 2014 Christmas celebration, according to the U.S.-based International Christian Concern. They, like us, wanted to celebrate the birth of the Messiah. Well, the three men fled the Islamic country just weeks after two other Christians, a pastor and his wife, were forced to flee after their appeals were rejected. Uh, and ICC noted that the flight of five Christians from within a space of a few weeks is noteworthy, especially as their cases were some of the most publicized among Iran's persecuted Christian community. And yet in that context, not surprising that uh, there's persecution because Jesus himself uh, said that we would know tribulation. We are the exception in terms of uh, opposition that we may face for our uh, Christian faith. We're the exception, not the rule worldwide, although perhaps we're approaching that or will approach that in the future to reflect what most of the Christian community faces. Uh, but in the light of all of that uh, and the persecution, this report suggests that Iran has over one million converts to Christianity, that the church is growing. And in fact, if I recall, Admission Connection uh, this last, I guess it was this year, it was in January, we were told that the church is growing perhaps the fastest in Iran than virtually anywhere else in the world. Now, that's, it's hard to even imagine that, 
but it reminds us that God is not um, absent. He's not uh, disinterested. He's not disconnected from what's going on in the world, that sin cannot thwart uh, his purposes in the earth, and that you and I, as frustrated as we might become, as concerned as we might be, as fearful perhaps as we might be, we can turn to him and know that he's not uh, shrugging his shoulders, his brow isn't furrowed, he's not confused, that God will accomplish everything that his word says he will accomplish, and we can rest in him. Now, it may mean that we're going to suffer uh, some challenges, because as we know, with the fall, there is a a curse uh, that we all live under. But when we have put our faith in Christ, when we have trusted in him, there are some promises that he has made to us, that he'll never leave us or forsake us, that he has his hand on history, and that his will ultimately will be fulfilled. We can take a deep sigh of relief and know that God is at work. I may not see it. I don't know where it's happening. I don't know how it's being carried out, but he's fulfilling his word and his purposes in my life, and he's fulfilling his word and his purposes in all the earth that he himself created. So uh, I, I spend time praying for this country, praying for our political leaders, praying for outcomes that will uh, facilitate uh, God's will to be accomplished. Those outcomes may not uh, be consistent with what I uh, prefer, but I'm praying that his will be done um, and that men and women would continue to come to faith in Christ through uh, through these difficult days. I hope you will do the same. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Thanks for joining us. I hope you'll be with us here again tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.